0: I have a a survey. It's three questions. And it just says, uh, do grades help you learn? How do grades make you feel? And why do teachers use grades? The sad part to me, the the comment I see most often when I ask how do grades make Mm -hmm. you feel across the board, kids just say dumb. Mm -hmm. And like no teacher would ever intentionally send that message to a kid. Like you would never verbally (laughs) say that to a student. But oftentimes our grading practices communicate that to them because it's you know, typically a dehumanized assessment process is you try this thing, no matter how it goes, we're moving on. And that's where kids really feel dumb. Because the whole point of, of assessment is, is to listen, like to listen to kids.
1: Ponder this. What are three psychological states you want students to feel in your school or classroom? Maybe you think of things like motivated, empowered, accepted. Now think about how your school or class's grading and assessment practices either support or thwart those states. Does ranking and dividing them by grade letters and percentages make them feel accepted? Does a no-retake or one-and-done assessment empower them to try again or believe they can succeed in the future? Do the grading practices intrinsically motivate them to focus on the learning and conceptual understanding, or does it extrinsically motivate them to cut corners to quote-unquote make the grade? Do the grading practices motivate them at all quality assessment and feedback are key to unlocking high-level learning but are the keys we're currently holding broken this episode we're doing a deep practical dirty and nerdy dive into how to humanize assessment practices creating systems and strategies that truly empower and motivate students if you're a school leader looking for new ideas to improve old systems stay tuned If you're a teacher looking for practical, teacher-tested strategies to use regardless of school systems, then stick around. Or if you're just a human who has dealt with grade rage in the past, join us today. Grab your favorite drink and a tasting rubric. It's time to upgrade with another Educator Happy Hour. Educator Happy Hour is brought to you by Top Youth Speakers. Are you looking to inspire your students or staff to not only motivate their thinking, but their actions in school and beyond? Then check out Top Youth Speakers. Top Youth Speakers is a group of 33 carefully vetted speakers and professional development leaders whose messages are engaging, evidence-based, and life-changing. Browse speakers, check out customer reviews, and watch preview videos at topyouthspeakers.com. What is up? Happy hour, hodgepodge. Cheers to you for listening right now when there are so many things you could be doing differently. I'm really honored you're making the choice to dive into this episode today, and it won't disappoint you. We're going to be talking about one of the key and important practices around education, which is assessment and feedback and how to do it in a way that actually humanizes students and learning. But before we engage in reducing that grade rage, I have some statement updates for you. Last week was a huge conversation around kindness and how to create kindness campaigns for the good of our society or schools or even our own sanity, and my guest Lisa Green was given a few statements to respond to. Those were posted on Instagram into my stories, at Chase Milky, and here were the responses. The first statement was the world is more cruel now than in prior decades. 32% of people strongly agreed, 44% of people agreed, 17% disagreed, and only 7% strongly disagreed, meaning a lot of people feel like it is more cruel. Now, I'd be curious to follow up with individuals. Where are they sourcing this from? From what experiences in their lives? How recent? How frequent? What media? What other means? Are they sourcing it? And I would continue to give you a challenge. One of the assignments or tasks we gave last week was to take a break from social media and just notice how it impacts your awareness. So what would it look like if over the next week you didn't dive into the media online, but you just use your own vision to source? Where are you seeing kindness and where are you seeing cruelty? And I would challenge you to look for the kindness and see, does it not exist the way it has previously, or is there truly more cruelty in the world? Either way, all the more reasons to try to embed or create some more kindness within our world. Our next statement was, for school reform to work, everyone must be on board. We had 44% of individuals strongly agree, 29% agree, and 26% disagreed. No one strongly disagreed with that statement. As Lisa mentioned, it is far more effective to have school reform work when everyone is paddling in the right direction. However, I continue to contend that we don't necessarily have to wait until everyone's all on board to start or initiate that reform. And if we have enough passionate people moving forward, the tipping point might work in our favor so that those who aren't initially on the reform have no choice but to join us along the cause. So don't wait for the reform. Create the reform, whether everyone's with you or not. That's my hope. Our last statement was the most interesting response of a statement that I have posted so far, which was the statement of there's no such thing as true altruism. This was a straight up 50-50%. 50% 50 of people agreed... 50% disagreed. No one was strongly agree or strongly disagree. People were pretty well divided. And this was another one that stirred a lot of conversation in comments or in direct messages. I was speaking with a friend and former student around this idea of a lot of it hinges on the definition. So for example, you see these stories of these custodians who just secretly amass millions of dollars. No one even knows it. And then after they pass away, they donate it without any need for recognition. Now one could argue, That is some true altruism. Like, they weren't doing it for the credit. They didn't even pass on until after they passed on. But then there are these lingering questions. Were they doing it to try to get into heaven? Were they doing it because they wanted to have their family's name put in a positive light? And is that negating the true altruism below? It can be real easy to get hung up on the definitions of what do we mean by true altruism. But I share with you what I shared with all my students in teaching this concept of try to get altruism-ish. If you can just do your best to do kindness, regardless of the context or the character of another person or the need for recognition, I think the world will be a better place. And with that, we close off our statements update for this week. If you want to join along each Tuesday, I post these statements after posting an episode. So follow me on Instagram at chase milky, share your opinion in the polls, or leave a message or direct comment of how you're feeling about each of these controversial or at least interesting topics. And now let's get to it with this week's episode. I write and speak often about the effect of value conflicts in education. In Maslach and Leiter's research on burnout, one of the six major causes of exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy is having a value mismatch. And though there are many mismatches that can happen in schools. One that affects me deeply is the mismatch arising from traditional grading and assessment practices and the value of wanting students to learn intrinsically and be motivated intrinsically. I always felt so inefficacious when I saw how the standard A, B, C, D, E system of grading affected my students' motivation. High schoolers would come in with a decade of learned helplessness, feeling defeated on day one because past grades told them they weren't good enough. I would see students break into literal tears over a B+, plus because their identity was so deeply welded to being a quote-unquote A student. I would feel sick to my stomach at handing students feedback on an essay knowing that the fast-paced curriculum wouldn't even give them a chance to use that feedback in the future. But as any educator with these frustrations knows, it's hard to innovate this system solo. What can I do as a lowly individual teacher to counter years, decades, a century of these grading and assessment practices? If you feel the similar weight of this doom star bearing down on you, don't give in to the dark side. Because this week we're tapping into the force with a Jedi assessment warrior. My guest this week does more than just bemoan the system, more than just talk the talk of improving assessment practices, more than pie in the sky utopian talk. He researches, writes about, and most importantly applies assessment practices that are hopeful and humanizing. Tyler Rablin is a high school English language arts teacher in Sunnyside, Washington. His passion is around the integration of humanized assessment practices combined with intentional technology use to create a new learning experience for students. His work has been featured on Edutopia, EdSurge, and Cult of Pedagogy, and he was named a Top 30 K-12 Influencer by EdTech Magazine in 2022. He has a book coming out through Times 10 Publishing that analyzes the link between motivation and assessment. And outside of the classroom, you can often find him running, hiking, reading, or woodworking, where he is no doubt secretly honing his Jedi skills. It's time to learn from the Yoda Jedi assessment warrior, Tyler Rablin. All right, Tyler, welcome to Educator Happy Hour. How's life treating you in the great Northwest up there?
0: Oh, it's great. It's like 75 degrees today. and what? perf. It's so nice out in central Washington right now, so I have zero complaints.
1: <sighs> That's beautiful. Is that normal for this time of year for y'all?
0: Uh, yeah, we're normally about here. It's been cold so far. So like this is our first day where I was able to go for a run in like short sleeves. So it was it was nice. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, I, I can't tell you how geeked I am to have you on this podcast. Honestly, before I even launched this podcast, I've been following you for quite a while on Twitter and you were one of those people who I'm like, I wish I could just like sit down and have a beer with this guy to just like nerd out and talk about this crazy mythical beast we call assessment. Uh, so I'm so geeked to like formally. Get a chance to do that uh, which kind of leaves my first general question for you how many rubrics or spreadsheets do you own or have you created because i feel like every time i hop on twitter like you have this amazing immaculate beautiful rubric or google spreadsheet i'm like man this guy is a master of those things how many do you think you have whether what's your overall
0: I don't know the 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 the, I guess the uh, the crowning jewel of all my spreadsheets is there's one I had like it was a year long process of trying to unpack (laughs) all of the 910 ELA standards and I have a spreadsheet that just has a stupid amount of all of those like unpacked and built into learning progressions (laughs) and rubrics and it's. Like, it's just, it was, I don't know why I did it, to be honest, it was so much and I will never be able to use all of that. But it was just like one of those things, where I, Like you said, I had built enough rubrics and spreadsheets yeah. that I was like, well, let's see if I can get all the way to the end of these. Like, how many can oh, I do? And that embarked me on my weird journey.
1: They're incredible. I mean, you could probably get a job literally. I don't know if you'd want that job. It sounds to me like terrible, but you could probably get a job just making spreadsheets and rubrics (laughs) and Google Forms for folks because you are that talented. Uh, No, honestly, the, the first question we always ask every guest on Educator Happy Hour is if you are having a stressful or challenging day, what is your drink or your decompressor of choice?
0: Oh, uh, okay. Both sides of the coin. I am a, I, I'm a bourbon fan. Like that's my go-to. Right. So if I need, if I need a drink, it's bourbon. Typically, uh, my decompressor is a run, like a run, or if All I have right. time, a hike hike's ideal, but you know, not always an option. So either yeah, of those,
1: two. Does the bourbon come before the run or after the run or along with the run in the uh, camelback? After
0: after a run, (laughs) during the hike.
1: Uh, That's (laughs) kind of... So honestly, the the topic that we're going to be diving into is one that every educator has to deal with, which is the topic of assessment. And assessment is this really nebulous and challenging thing because there's so many values and opinions and there's so much tradition built into how educators assess and provide feedback and how grades come into play. But where I want to start with is, is you often use the term humanized assessment. And I would love to kind of dive into what that is, because so much of assessment seems counter to that, like it almost feels like objectification of we're just really trying to rank and order students and put them into bell curves. So share with us a little bit more, like, what do we mean by humanized assessment? The big
0: thing for me, I mean, the the typical approach to assessment is you you have students who are engaging in this very challenging act of learning, and then we put mm-hmm. them through a series of tasks or activities where they're supposed to show us what they know. And at the end, without any necessarily input or conversation, a lot of times all of that information gets condensed down to one single letter or one single number. Mm. And mm-hmm. when you put yourself in the shoes of a student, that's a very dehumanizing process. Like I've gone through, <laughs> I've engaged in this struggle. I've gone through all of these things. I've tried my best. And all of a sudden I just get like a label slapped on me and move along, you know? And so yeah. I think when that's the approach to assessment, it makes people feel I mean, I know when I'm in situations like that, it it feels very depersonalized. It feels like I am not Mm. the important part of that equation, whatever is going Mm. on there. And so when we talk about humanizing assessment, one of the big things is just how much of a say does the student have in that process? Like how actively involved Mm. are they? Because typically their involvement is I do the thing I'm being asked to do, and then that's the end of my involvement. Like everything else from there on out is oftentimes teacher focused and so being able to pull them in and say hey like let's you you did this activity can we sit down and talk about what you learned from it um i I often use that the analogy of like uh, assessment to me those tasks are the bricks um, but when we talk about humanized assessment, it's all about kind of the mortar that we put in between. And that's those conversations mm. with kids, the, the times that we get to sit down with them, the, the times where we just say, hey, what did this assessment not show me that, you know, like even simple questions like that a lot of times give students a chance to say. I'm more than that test or, you know, like Mm -hmm. the test didn't go well, but here's the stuff that I really do know and being able to value that and let them know that that's important and that matters in this process, too.
1: Yeah, there's a definite power shift in that approach of, you know, the teacher going from wielding all the power and being able to pretty much dictate what a student not only does, but how they are seen and evaluated and perceived to now bringing students into that process. So it's a little bit more democratic. And and that analogy of of them those conversations or those moments in between of, of being that mortar is really illuminating. And it's a different shift than I think a lot of educators are used to. What are, if you could name like, just what are a couple practices that you have really utilize to kind of help at least start that shift or coach other teachers and make that shift from the objectification to more of the humanizing approach.
0: In terms of like working with other educators, one of the things that I think is so powerful when we talk about any sort of request for changing our assessment practices is being able to get voices of kids uh, I spent a long mm-hmm. time in my career trying to encourage other teachers to to change focusing from a teacher lens here's why we should do this here's mm-hmm. why you know here's this theory mm-hmm. that's really good and I now have a collection anytime I work with a school or anytime I get a new batch of students in my own classroom um, I have a, a survey it's three questions and it just says uh, do grades help you learn how do grades make you feel and why do teachers use grades and just gathering mm. the voices of kids around those questions is oftentimes I found the best place to start that conversation mm. because it's no longer a, uh, oftentimes grading reform is seen as a top-down thing or it's seen as yeah. a new initiative that's just, you know, another one of these unnecessary things teachers feel like they have to do.
1: But when you start <laughs> yeah. with
0: like listening to kids and kids are saying, you know, the, the sad part to me, the, the, the comment I see most often when I ask how do grades make mm. you feel across the board, kids just say, dumb um and like no teacher would ever intentionally send that message to a kid like you would never verbally say that to a student but oftentimes our grading practices communicate that to them because it's you know typically a a dehumanized assessment process is you try this thing no matter how it goes we're moving on and that's where kids really feel dumb because the whole point of of assessment is is to listen like to listen to kids Hmm. and to hear what they're saying that they really need and so if a kid obviously struggles on an assessment or has a hard time with whatever we're learning. And they they're saying, I need help with this. I don't get it. And our reaction to that is huge. So are we saying, hey, I built in a day after the assessment for you, like Mm. here's three concepts on the assessment, and this is your chance to try it again, learn it again. That's where you see that shift start to take place where kids are not feeling like this passive agent Mm. in in learning where they're just like, I tried it and I'm stuck. Oh, we're moving on. I'm being left. Okay, whatever. Versus them being able to say, I didn't get it. Oh, and that matters. And now I know that I need to learn that and I have time to learn that. So even just little shifts, like adding a day after an assessment. Because you know, like Mm -hmm. maybe one kid's going to get 100%, but they still have something to learn. But every kid's got something they could dive in a little bit more after that assessment. So adding that extra day is huge for me. It's one of my favorite shifts that I've made to really be able to not just tell kids, hey, this assessment helps you figure out what you need to learn, but really mean it. Like, hey. You're going to have tomorrow. You figured out what you need to learn. Tomorrow, we're going to focus on that.
1: Yeah. No, that that idea of, uh, alone of just literally building in a day into my schedule, I think... Uh, it deals with a lot of uh, the devil's advocate kind of mindsets. And we're probably going to talk about quite a few of them during this conversation of like, well, when do I have time to like sit down and conference with kids and like let them have a chance to retry or reteach them. But if it's like literally in your schedule already in the calendar that eliminates kind of that excuse or that challenge that a lot of educators have with that idea of like, they know going into it that they're going to get a chance to try again or to approach the assessment differently. Uh, one other devil's advocate that I could see people saying is like, do they try hard enough for initially on the first go? Or are they just kind of like, oh, I'll get another chance at it tomorrow. What have you noticed about the effort levels or even the motivation levels as you've made these shifts?
0: This So this is really good timing to ask that question. I've had, we were <laughs> trimesters in trimesters in my school. Yeah. And so, yeah. first trimester, I have my freshman all year long for freshman English. And uh-huh. first trimester, I used my traditional approach to to grading and assessment. So it's super standards mm-hmm. based. It's kids have multiple mm-hmm. attempts, and they got used to that. And then, you know, coming back from remote learning, I there are so mm-hmm. many. There, there almost seemed to be a, a the pendulum swinging back towards more compliance focused punitive grading practices it, because yeah. teachers were frustrated. Like I felt it too. Right. Like kids, <laughs> yeah. I, one of my friends says there were two epidemics or two pandemics and one of them was missing work. Like that was one of the pandemics <laughs> that teachers experience is just like, I don't know where any of the assignments are. They've never shown up. Yeah. And so I, I think that was, that was really frustrating to a lot of teachers. And as a result, you know, you yeah. saw those, the no late work ever accepted, the, mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. hard, hard penalties for, for late work, you know, hard penalties for missing work, whatever it was. And so my Mm -hmm. second trimester, I was like, all right, if I'm like, Constantly saying there's no way that that works, and I haven't tried it out. <laughs> Let's see how it goes. And so my poor freshman, like by the, I, I have to preface this because ethically I was so <laughs> conflicted this whole time.
1: But like by right. the end
0: of the trimester, we had a conversation. We went back. I had kept records of the tri- like standards, grades, and all that. So we went back to that. But all trimester long, it was super compliance focused grading. Um, uh, did mm-hmm. you do it? Did you not? That's your grade in the grade book. Um, and you know I I expected to see actually. I expected to see some increase in student turn-in like I just Mm -hmm. the way that we operate the culture of school right now is is oftentimes fairly compliance focused Um, and it's Mm -hmm. what kids are used to and so it is really hard to shift them out of that and so I figured you know they'd revert back to what they were used to this thing's worth points it's like a vending machine I Mm -hmm. give the assignment I get my points (laughs) Um, and so I was like yeah I'm probably gonna see a higher turn-in rate and I, I still haven't unpacked all of my data from this experiment, mm-hmm. but the, there was an increase, but it was tiny. Like the increase in mm. turn-in rates was really small. And what I was getting instead was more like just shoddy work. Like it was kids yeah. just rushing to be like, I got to get this done. Let's just do this. I was seeing more, I was talking to more kids about copying each other, about cheating because right, it was so yeah. focused on, I've got to get this thing done. Like that's all that matters. This, yeah. th- this thing needs to happen as opposed to, and so. I was seeing what felt like an increase in productivity, because I was seeing some more assignments come in. But when I really sat back and looked at what was coming in, it mm. wasn't as high a quality of work as what I was seeing previously. And, and so even mm. though kids know they have another attempt, oftentimes, like in my class, students know they have typically five attempts to under to demonstrate learning of something. Mm. And with that being said, I've really dropped the number of things that I am (laughs) assessing students on because like, I can't do that for a bunch (laughs) of things. Um, (laughs) but, but they know if, if in their first three attempts, they've demonstrated mastery and they get some flexibility to pursue things with more choice. And this is one of the things that I think we often overlook in terms of the possibilities of shifting our assessment systems is like, I was super frustrated And I still catch myself being frustrated with kind of the time constraints (laughs) of curriculum where I just feel like I don't have the freedom to let kids do the things that I know they're passionate about and interested in. But when you shift your assessment to focus more on like a standards-based approach and a kid's demonstrated mastery well before you're done assessing that skill, that's Mm. where that door Mm -hmm. opens up to be like, hey, on these first three, you've shown me that you know it. Now I want you to show me you know it in a way that matters to you. Um, mm. and so when kids know that, and it takes a while, like my, I, I love that I get my freshman all year long. Cause by the spring they get it. And it's right. really cool to see kind of that change come about, but when they know that if I demonstrate mastery early, I get more flexibility to do things that I'm passionate about. I'm really interested in it, that gives them a decent amount of motivation to say like, all right, like. I don't want to take another quiz. They're like, I don't want to you know, right? do a writing prompt that Mr. Rablin is assigning. I want to be <laughs> able to choose what I want to do. And that's where a lot more of that flexibility is for me.
1: That's fascinating. I mean, first of all, I love that you just did like an experimental study on your students. Like that. <laughs> it was the most fun. We are just like, well, literally, I have these guinea pigs right in front of me. Let's just see what happens there. But I think that is one of the processes a lot of educators have to take is they have to try to explore and try things whether they know how they're going to work or not and then learn from those experiences of like okay how do i want to meet the assessment values i have with my current contacts with what's important to my students as well is a way to try to explore and connect some of those things and i'm not not surprised of the idea of you might have gotten more of the compliance that you might have gotten more turn-in rates, but, you know, the benefits of that come at a cost in so Mm -hmm. many ways around motivation. And I think one of the major frustrations I always had as an educator is, like, almost kind of like the hypocrisy of, you know, we... Sometimes we demonize students for not turning in this work and being compliant with it. And then like any chance we had as educators to like do the bare minimum for our evaluations or our sketches or our professional development, like we would take those things because we're humans and it's in humans nature to try to get the biggest gain with the least amount of effort as possible. And so many of those compliance based practices just allow those things to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. On the note of like looking at some of the other challenges that an educator might have, um, let's talk about what would you say or how would you recommend or advise an educator who feels like their personal beliefs around assessment practices are at odds with their team that they work with or their department or even their school system? Like, how do they work within those challenging conditions?
0: Yeah, this and I'm going to preface this with I've been really lucky with the administrators I've gotten to work mm. for. Um, mm. But there was a my it was my. Second year of teaching, um, I had a student that I, I had I had just begun to explore what what alternative assessment methods might look like. And so mm. I had like this kind of understanding in the back of my mind that I was working on, but I was still using just the way that I was graded growing up, like a very right. just traditional <laughs> approach. And so that's what I was yeah. doing. And I had this moment where this, this student was failing my class like single digits percent in terms of her grade. Mm. And but she was an absolutely like to this day, probably one of the best writers I've ever had in my class. Mm. Um, Mm. and I, I had this moment of like, just real recognition that the, the, the way I was trying to communicate the students level of understanding was not matching up with reality. And so I had this sort of like cognitive dissonance going on and I sat down with my (laughs) administrator and, uh, just said like what what do i do i I don't think this is accurate i don't think this is fair and he really like just sat me down and he was like did she learn did she demonstrate the things that she needs to know and so Mm. what i learned from that experience is i had this expectation that i had essentially developed for myself of this is how i'm supposed to grade these are my expectations and when i sat down and really asked for hard answers from someone above me a principal Oftentimes, I find there's more freedom than I expected. Um, mm. So, like even right now, I work my my team's about. Well, we're smaller this year. Usually, there's like eight or nine freshman English teachers in my building, <laughs> um, and we're supposed to be fairly aligned. And even with things like curriculum, we're supposed to be super aligned. But every time I've gotten to a point of just like this isn't meshing, this isn't working, I've got to try to make a change. If I sit down with either the team or my principal or both usually those conversations where you try to say listen we need to strip it all back like what is the thing that i need mm. to make sure that i'm doing with kids or what are the actual requirements that are, that are set around me as educators we we are probably our harshest critic. And we are so (laughs) constantly saying like, no, I've got to be perfect. This is what it's supposed to be. These are the expectations. And like, (laughs) I am someone who is learning through, like, I've got to let a lot of that stuff go. And so those conversations were just really sitting down with someone who you might feel like is putting expectations on you and saying like, Here's the reality. And usually opening that conversation with, here's why it's not working for kids. Mm -hmm. I've very rarely met anyone in education that is not willing to question what's going on when (laughs) that's the approach of like, okay, that's our kids are our focus and it's not working. Let's actually have a conversation here.
1: Yeah, no, that reminds me of, I was, I remember whenever you had posted it, your article on the invisible problem. And you were looking at like, you know, a lot of times we start with like the practices or the actions when really what we need to get down through the beliefs and what is holding up those beliefs. And mm-hmm. having those conversations around those beliefs first and foremost is one way to, to find that unification of like, oh no, we do all really want kids to succeed and we want them to grow. And we want feedback that helps them grow and allows us to have some understanding. And starting at that point is, is a great way to approach it rather than like, I'm done giving zeros. And then another colleague's like, whatever you're doing, they're going to have such conflict in my class. Like, you know, those things start to arise, but when it gets down to those beliefs, that's a big piece of it. And the other thing I've been just realizing more and more within my own writing and my experience as an educator, and, and even just this podcast is how often it feels like we Fall into these false dichotomies of it's either like one way or another, and there's no in between. Like, either I have no power or control over my assessment practices, or it's a freaking free for all that I'm just going to be a hippie (laughs) doing whatever I want. Um, Or it's just even within a teacher's experience of like they don't necessarily have to scrap everything they've done in the past with their assessment practices, but looking at how do I layer in a little bit more choice, or how do I layer in a little bit more conferencing is as a starting point to get some movement in the right direction rather than being like, screw it, there's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so kudos to you for, for having those conversations and sharing with the world how those conversations <laughs> can go and what your experiences are. Um, in terms of like looking at assessment and grades, how do those two fit together? Because a lot of schools, they are gonna need to have grades and it is gonna be a, something that is not negotiable. So what's the relationship between grades and assessment and how do you balance those things?
0: Yeah, that's in the ideal world, you know, like we don't have to worry about figuring out a grade at any point, but (laughs) I know a few people that work in this awesome utopia where grades don't exist and I'm super jealous (laughs) of them, but like, that's not the case for so many of Uh, us. And I think uh, it's, it's interesting. That's a lot of times the, the hang up for a lot of people in looking at some mm. sort of assessment and grading reform is they're like, Mm. well, it's still going to end up in a grade. So, you know, I can't Mm. do blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like if 90% of something is a good thing and then 10% is a bad thing, it's still 90% (laughs) of a good thing right there. (laughs) Um, so the the biggest thing that I've had to realize through kind of all of my work with assessment is when a grade has to be involved as much as possible, if that is a two-way street, the grade holds less harm than it does when it's a one-way street Mm. where, um, Mm like if 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 that grade is determined in in conversation or like actually today my my debate class did their first grade pitch which is how they set up for our conferences where
1: hmm. they
0: they we have four skills that we've worked on in this trimester so far and they pull their best example from their work so far of each skill and say here's hmm. why i think this is good here's where it falls on the learning progression and then through all of that, then it says, you know, based on this, what what grade do you feel like you deserve? And I'm pretty transparent with them that like, okay, this is not a one-way street, you to me, or you tell me the, the grade. Like it is still a two-way street where if you, you know, have nothing turned in and you're like, I deserve an A plus. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, but But just that act of them being required to take ownership. I think a lot of times when mm-hmm. the grade just comes from the teacher to the student, you hear it all the time, mister, why did you give me this grade? And as much as it's like frustrating where you're like, oh, I didn't do that. The reality (laughs) is like, that's how they're perceiving it. Like I gave you this thing. You went behind some weird curtain. Like, did a couple things and then out came this grade, right? Like, that's like how they view it is like, I don't understand this process. You stole my stuff and then gave me a bad grade. (laughs) But if like they are actively involved that whole time of like, hey, I'm not going away to look at your writing and then talk about a score. We are sitting down together to talk Mm. about your writing and then determine a score together. And if if I have to make a call that maybe you disagree with, I'm forced to be held accountable to say, here's why. Right. And that Mm. conversation is then becomes feedback. And we sit down and we really say and and I'm able to say, I think my favorite part about making that grading practice a two way street, uh, a conversational piece is it feels way less final for students versus Mm. when they just get something back and it's got a grade. So often they feel like, oh, that's where I'm at. That's the label that slapped on me versus being able to sit down and say hey, this is where you're at right now, but here's the thing I want you to focus on next or here's how we're going to grow from here. Um, Just being able to do that in the moment, I feel like really decreases the amount of harm that grades can do to student motivation, to their willingness to learn, all of those things.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like I'm I'm having this this major like Wizard of Oz kind of moment of it. It really is like <laughs> you go behind the curtain and you're like, I don't know what's going on right now, but all of a sudden I'm just gifted this thing. And I think your ability to speak to that and be able to try to make changes at the high school or secondary level is huge because I always felt as a high school teacher, like, man, they, they're coming into me with like a decade of experience in this system And how am I going to shift that in one trimester, one 12-week course, one experience in to know that like it is some of those maneuvers of just bringing them in the conversation and Mm -hmm. shifting to conferencing and whether it's pre-conferencing, post-conferencing or throughout the process of those little maneuvers can mean a whole lot and at least – trying to demystify the experience of learning and assessment and feedback, and at best help students feel actively a part of the process rather than just like passively, screw it, I can't do anything different, it's just gonna end up the same way it always has. So that's that's mm-hmm. a big shift for a lot of educators in a powerful way. Now with that shift comes, I think, at least my final devil's advocate question for now, which is time, how can educators shift their time? Because the number one thing I hear from educators is like, I don't have enough time to pee, let alone do all these (laughs) massive changes within my world. And like the curriculum is being jammed down my throat. So what hot tips you have for trying to build in or shift time to have those conversations or at the very least not bring home a whole lot of extra work on your end as a teacher?
0: Yeah, the the, the question always comes up around student conferencing because it's like, right. you know, like my class, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, my classes are about 30 kids each. I know there's yeah. classes yeah. that are a lot bigger than that right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but what I used to do, and I still do it sometimes when I really just need to like have a solid day of conferencing is I would, you know, mm-hmm. have a launch planned and then a large chunk of independent work time. Um, Working Mm -hmm. with freshmen, that's difficult for them sometimes. And so (laughs) what I've shifted to and what I think a lot of times is feels more doable for teachers is like if I have an entry task planned every day, that's going to take five to 10 minutes. I can usually Mm -hmm. talk to two to three kids. And if you do that, Mm -hmm. you know, every day in the week, that's 15 kids a week. If I do that for two weeks, I've talked to every single kid and I haven't changed my schedule at all. Um, And so. You know, the biggest tip that I have for people concerned with time in terms of really wanting to get those one-on-one conversations in, and, and, you know, I will say even if it involves giving up something or, or, you know, Uh, maybe loosening the reins somewhere, those one-on-one conversations are absolutely worth it, but do it in mm, small doses mm. first because there are, like, Mm those small doses of time where you can sit down with three students and say, Hey, even if it's, Hey, this was your last test. This was a a trend that I noticed something for you to work on. What are you feeling about that? What are you thinking about Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Even those little conversations and in in an era where I know teachers are really struggling to help students tap into motivation right now, (laughs) those little conversations have a huge impact um because they know some you're paying attention you want to help them you're really aware of how they're doing and you want to actually see them succeed and and it's hard to do that without the conversational piece the relational piece of teaching
1: the shift to conferencing was probably the most powerful thing i did as an educator and you know similarly my experiences within english language arts and so like the amount of times I would bring home essays and spend mm-hmm. my entire freaking Sunday writing the feedback and handing it to them and they would just flip to the grade, drop it in the bin like that was so <laughs> frustrating. But yeah. just like finding those maneuvers of like, well, they're already going to be doing some drafting time in class. So that's going to be my moment. I'm just going to take, you know, normally I'm just kind of wandering around the room anyway. Like I'm just going to pull kids aside or even just pulling them in groups of like, Hey, I know these kids all need to work on transition. So like, I'm just going to pull a few of them together and go over some strategies and help like that. That actually ended up saving me so much time as an educator. And the amount of feedback I got from students of like, oh, I finally understand how to do this or I haven't gotten this good of feedback in the past was like, okay, we're on to something when we just find a way to create time for those conversations because the carryover effect and the power of that can make up for anything else I might have to scrap or tweak or cut or what mini lesson I don't get to do in this moment. So uh, for any educator out there listening, like that creativity piece of just looking for little ways to start to make those shifts or those conferences could not recommend more highly. Um, so mm. thanks for sharing, like some of those ways that you've embedded it into your world. Now, as we start to shift out and transition into like our final section, I want to give a, just one other opportunity. Of are there any other tips or strategies, technology pieces, or anything else that if someone out there is listening and wants to make some changes to having a more humanized approach to assessment, what are some things that you would recommend to them?
0: So in terms of uh, technology pieces, one of the things that I have found Mm. really helpful, not necessarily on humanizing it more, but on making Mm. students... Uh, which I guess kind of humanizes it, helping students see <laughs> when they get feedback that it's going somewhere as opposed to like, mm. you know, I always say if you give someone feedback and no opportunity to use it, it's basically just a slap in the face. <laughs> like, right, it's like, right. it's like, hey, you're not good at this, but I don't care, we're moving on. Like that's <laughs> right. kind of how feedback comes across sometimes. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. Yeah. And so I really love, there's a tool, I use one called A-Text, it's specific for Mac, but any sort of text expander, um, I got this mm. idea, my my dad works in like software development and I've got a bunch of friends who work in code. And one mm. day, I think it was like over beers, I was lamenting, like, I just type the same <laughs> thing over and over and over. And mm. one of my friends who works in the software industry was like, so do I. That's why I use a tec- text expander so I don't have to do it. <laughs> and so he explained like the idea behind it is. Key, you can preset these like codes so if, if I my mm. example for run-on sentences is dot ro if I type that for feedback, it, I've set it up so it pops a full explanation like of what a run-on Ooh. is and you can link resources in there too. so instead of just being like hey, you're struggling with run-ons it's like hey this is a trend I'm noticing run on sentences mm. or something you you I see a lot of here's like three videos that will teach you how to do it or here's three resources mm. and so now, and I always, when I try to leave feedback, I used to be the English teacher who like had to mark everything as if it was a challenge <laughs> right. for me to catch it all. Um, Ooh, and another I realized, of
1: Get yeah,
0: exactly. And I'd mark every single one. And then I like, got, I learned a little bit about cognitive load theory and working memory. And I was like, oh, that doesn't work at all. Good to know. <laughs> right. um, so I, now I usually just leave one, maybe two comments if it's going to be like things mm-hmm. that I want students to work on. Because really, that's the extent yeah. of what they're going to work on anyways. And it saves yeah. me a ton of time. And especially when I pair it with a text expander, like mm. what takes me three keystrokes is now an, a, an additional lesson. You know, we talked about the day after right. the test, the day after mm. feedback, like something for the student mm. to say, like, okay, here's what I'm going to do with this feedback the next day. You know, real, I'm not leaving feedback the day after the essays. is due. We all know that's not realistic.
1: But <laughs> I was like, how do whenever... <laughs> you pull that one off?
0: <laughs> whenever I know I can get the feedback, that's the next day. That's what I try to do. Um, but just something for them to take and use. And then the other piece with, I've kind of just segued to feedback now at this point, but mm-hmm. that really helps with feedback, make it feel like something that is building towards something is giving students a place to collect it. So if I leave mm-hmm. a comment about run-on sentences with a video, My students have a feedback portfolio where they can record, hey, run-on sentences are something that I'm working on. Here's something I learned. Here's what I need to do next time. And it's on one page so that the next time we sit down to write, students all can pull that up and say, this is what I'm working on. The the format of that that I currently use has, I have a a grows and glows column. So grows is like things that we're working on. Glows is stuff to celebrate. And the really cool part about this that I guess coming back around to the humanizing element of it, is students who early on maybe really struggled with those run-ons and they saw that in the grows column multiple times, but they intentionally worked on it. Eventually, they see that become something that's celebrated when they get it, when they Mm. learn how to do it. And without having a place to put that, it's really hard for the student to celebrate their growth. And I think celebration in the assessment process is something we don't often get to do because we have isolated data, we're not seeing trends. But when kids get to like notice that, hey, I struggled with this early on, I had time, I had multiple attempts to work on it and I got it. That's Mm. a really cool experience for kids to start building their confidence and see that they're competent in these things, which we all need if we're going to persevere and try difficult things again.
1: Right. No, I love that because I don't know many like high school students are going to like go brag to their friends of like, dude, I just nailed fragments. I'm not doing fragments anymore. (laughs) Like, So like they have a designated space where they do get to have that moment of joy and that affirmation because like what we all know about motivation is unless there's some sort of payoff at the end of it or we're trying to avoid some pain, like people aren't going to do the things. And so the more we can really start to embed the feeling of success and that dopamine hit of they've put in some effort come to fruition. They can see mm-hmm. the evidence of that. That's, that's a huge thing. I think often gets left off because it really is like they get the feedback and then we're like, bam, next assignment, next thing, without a chance to really reflect on that. Love, love that idea. Oh my gosh, so many awesome ideas, but since I do want to make sure that you can get back to your family and your life and your world, (laughs) we're going to shift into our final section of this podcast. I'm going to give you three statements, and your options are to strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. And then we might elaborate a little bit more on some of your responses. And so we're going to be sticking to some themes here. Your first statement is... Schools should abolish grades.
0: Oh, um this is funny. This is, it, it's good timing because <laughs> my debate kids always want to debate this. Uh and It's something we've been talking about recently. <laughs> but I'm going to say agree. The only reason okay. I'm not saying strongly agree is because I think mm. a lot of assessment reform gets halted from this idea that we can't get rid of them yet. And so I think there's a lot, yes, grades have, there's a harmful aspect of grades, yeah. but I think there's a lot of good that we can do even when grades are still in the picture. And so Hmm. That's the only reason I'm not saying strongly agree because I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want someone to hear strongly agree and then think, like, well, that's it. We got to get rid of grades or nothing.
1: <laughs> Someone's going to clip out just that moment, like, no yeah. contest around of Like, oh, Tyler thinks we're done. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Great, great response as well. Um, okay. Your next statement teachers should use averages to calculate final grades.
0: Mm, strongly disagree. That's a quick answer for me.
1: Yeah. Talk to us about that one. Cause that was one of the things where I think I saw one of your like spreadsheet comparisons looking at, you know, some fictionalized grades of what happens when they do get averaged out. So share a little bit on that. Like why should that not be used within schools?
0: So a lot of it comes down to like I mentioned earlier the messages kids receive from grades. And so if you think about, let's say a kid has five attempts to demonstrate their understanding of a standard, and we're scoring mm-hmm. it out of five points. So five is the the mastery level of understanding. And you've got one student who comes in and starts with fours, and they get a few fours and then moves up to five. That's awesome. Like that's we that student showed growth. That student is mm-hmm. in a great spot. They're at the mastery level. And then you've got another student who comes in and starts at a one and they stay at a one and then they move to a two and then they make some huge leaps and go to four and five and whatever. Mm. Um, If the way that that student's grade will work out, the second student will get a lower grade. And so essentially Mm. thinking about the message we are sending to students there, the student that started lowest stays lowest. And that is like Mm. antithetical to what school should be like we should be saying no matter where you're at when you come into this course into this school you have the potential to be successful to achieve as right. high as you want and averaging when we when we average over time that's where we really send messages to kids of hey it doesn't doesn't matter that you ended up at the highest level we're going to hold you accountable for yeah. the fact that you started lower at the beginning
1: yeah, the the overlap between that and learned helplessness is, mm-hmm. is like shouting and screaming right now. And, and again, coming from the secondary background of how many times I've seen students come in and like they've given up before they've even tried anything because they're still harboring their failures from the past or those few moments that have really dragged them down that have just continued to surface again and again and again. Uh, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lived experience that I have is so much different than where a lot of those practices are, whether it's averages or how grades get factored in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your final statement, schools should stop accepting late work from students.
0: Oh Oh, man. Um, (laughs) I'm gonna go with a disagree there but I'm going to preface it a little bit. So I actually have a policy in my classroom where obviously like I'm a human things will get flexible eventually, but <laughs> I, I typically don't allow students to turn things in late and I, but I want to make sure it's clear mm. it's because they have multiple opportunities to demonstrate their understanding. Mm. Um, so like, especially my debate class right now, we have six major debates throughout the, the course mm-hmm. of the, the class and they, every time we have a debate, they have an individual responsibility to submit, hey, this is my mm-hmm. portion of the debate where I'm showing my mm-hmm. skills. If they don't have that done before the debate, I oftentimes don't take that after the debate. And it, the mm-hmm. message is, hey, the point of you turning it in before the debate mm-hmm. is so you could get feedback so that when the live performance comes up, you can really use that feedback to improve and get better. If you're rewriting it, yes, you're working on the skill, but we're going to have another opportunity I want yeah. you to focus your energy there. Um, so it's yeah. oftentimes when we say, when we don't accept late work, we also don't accept the learning that could go with that. And so right. if if you are saying, I'm not going to accept late work, it's really important to me that there's got to be a way for the student to still demonstrate their learning, engage in the learning outside of that one singular mm. assignment. Because otherwise, if mm. we just shut off that, we're telling the student that learning wasn't important to me. Like, right, like, I I don't care if you learned it, you just didn't get the thing (laughs) done in time. And, that you know, we can't do that. We we can't do that with kids. So do we have to find ways to manage our own workload and make things sustainable for us? Absolutely. And sometimes having to limit late work is a way that we have to do that just because Mm -hmm. we have a really heavy load of work that we have to make manageable. But we still have an obligation to make sure that the student has
1: access to that learning. Mm, that's such a key finding of that idea of the, the contingency plans or the middle ground of it's not one or the other. Cause I, I remember the moments when I would just like kind of let free for all late work and then kids would be turning in things at the end of the trimester that like happened literally months ago. And I'm like, this <laughs> like, is isn't even like relevant for either of us right now. Like I didn't get the <laughs> feedback I needed from you. Like you're just doing this to, to pump the grade up. And then those other moments of when I did feel like I shut it down entirely And it was just like this lost opportunity where I'm like, ah, crap, like, literally, I just slammed them with a grade and now they had no chance to to try again or do something differently. So mm-hmm. having kind of that balance of there are some hard deadlines, but there's still these other routes or opportunities to show or demonstrate your learning. So such a beautiful way to make sure that you aren't completely scrapping everything, um, but are completely reinventing from the scratch. So love it, love it, love it. Okay. Last question I have um, before we close it out, and this has been so illuminating for me. Oh my gosh. I'm my inner nerd is geeking out right now, is you have a book coming up soon. I would love to to hear more. Like what what's the book about and what can you share with us before it comes out?
0: Yeah, so it's coming out through Times 10 Publishing. It's part of their hack learning series. Sweet. And so it, it really looks at, you know, Instead of waiting for the system to change, how do we make those changes Mm -hmm. in small ways in our classroom to sort of hack the system? And so um, Mm -hmm. the title of the book is going to be Hacking Student Motivation Through Assessment. And it really looks at the link between uh, our grading practices, our assessment practices, and how they impact student motivation and what small changes we can make that tap into the motivation that we know every, every person has. Um, but oftentimes there's mm. just things that conflict with our practices in terms of fostering that motivation and helping students tap into it and see that it's there and then use it in the classroom. So it looks at there's five, is that right? There's five major ways. I'm in the, the <laughs> editing phase of it right now. So my brain is all a jumble. Um, there's no, five big sure. <laughs> kind, of, kind of big areas to look at in terms of how do we, you know, The theory behind motivation, behind the assessment practice, and then how do we make small changes in our classroom to sort of streamline the motivation process instead of building Mm -hmm. barriers to it?
1: Oh my gosh, I'm geeked. And I'm, I'm going to tell you when it comes out, I'm going to leave you the five-star review on Amazon because <laughs> I know those jerks, they average it out and they have all, they don't even give you a chance to like correct your mistakes and follow up. No, sincerely, like seeing the the, the reviews, there's so many times I'm like, well, I just want to talk to this person that left me a terrible review. Like I want a chance to <laughs> reshow my learning. Um, oh my gosh, I, I'm geeked for it. We will absolutely, we're going to be linking to so much of your work, your your accounts, your articles um within the show notes well my inner nerd is so stoked right now like again i wanted to have this conversation with you long before the podcast happened so thanks for letting me use this podcast as an excuse <laughs> to just get real nerdy around these concepts with you
0: awesome i this is great i really right. enjoyed getting to talk to you thanks for having me on
1: oh. All right, time's up. Happy hour hodgepodge. Turn those tests in. But don't worry, we now get a chance for new attempts at applying our learning from this episode. One of the many reasons I'm a huge fan of Tyler's work is that he illuminates systemic issues with assessment practices and spotlights practical changes any educator can make regardless of systemic issues. So there are a lot of insights from today's episode we can use to upgrade our practices, but here are a couple that stood out to me. Number one, Open a dialogue this next week or month. Tyler shared a few examples of how to start the conversation around our beliefs and experiences with grades and assessments. Oftentimes we focus in on the actions themselves and the little tweaks without really investigating how do these practices explore or demonstrate our values? And are there a mismatch between our actions and our values? And to what extent do we have unified values as a teaching or educational staff? Now, what this could look like in your specific context is if you're a teacher, invite students into the conversation, ask them how your current practices are affecting beliefs or learning and look for ways to implement their feedback. We don't have to completely rebuild everything at once, but giving students a chance to give us feedback on our feedback is great start in making our impact as educators visible. I will still remember when I got the feedback from students that I was giving them too much information to try to improve with their essays. And that helped me streamline to just focus on a couple key areas. Not only were their voices heard, but it allowed my feedback to be more effective. So bring students into the dialogue because they are living the experience of assessment feedback and grades every day. Another option of opening a dialogue is to start a conversation with your team or colleagues or your administrative staff Staff on how grading and assessment practices are affecting student learning. As Tyler mentioned, none of us want to have our students feel like they are dumb as a result of their grades, and yet that is oftentimes how our belief systems and our actions in practice are being demonstrated to students. So do the deep work and the deep exploration of what are our beliefs and are they matching up with those practices, and if not, what small or impactful tweaks could we make? To help with these conversations, I've linked a couple of Tyler's articles on how to approach these conversations with collaboration and improvement in mind. So check out the show notes. Now, your second potential assignment you could take on this week is to experiment with one new assessment or feedback strategy. Tyler mentioned the importance of making small changes to start. So consider which of his many examples and beautiful strategies you could put into practice with your students. For example, conferencing. Take a few minutes each day over the next couple weeks to have brief one-on-one or small group conversations with students to give them feedback for growth. You could try post-assessment days. Build in an extra day or hour after students see the results of an assessment to revise their learning and implement the feedback. Use text expanders, create more robust and more efficient feedback comments with text expanders like Tyler mentioned. I've linked a couple resources in the show notes to help you if you wanna make that shift or even just consider implementing more alternative attempts that could look like creating at least one alternative way that students can demonstrate learning if their first effort isn't as effective. We don't have to reinvent our entire curricula, but looking for those little moments where they get a chance to implement the feedback, show and demonstrate that they have the learning and develop the belief that their effort does matter for growth. As you hear me say often, don't overwhelm yourself by doing all the things all the time. Give yourself permission to grow your efficacy with one shift in practice. Reflect on the impact, then use it as fuel to keep growing. With that, I'll leave you to ponder your next move to humanize your assessment practices. Thank you for being the amazing humans you are. Happy hour hodgepodge. I'll see you next week with another attempt at learning and living. Cheers. Huge thanks to Tyler for carving out some time to share with us and for being such a pragmatic, approachable and innovative assessment Jedi warrior. Thanks to everyone out there who has given me feedback and assessment on our podcast. Though we're not a fan of averages over here, consider helping us grow by leaving a positive review wherever you listen to this podcast. Every review helps us grow our audience of happy hour hodgepodgers. Special thanks once again to our sponsors, Top Youth Speakers, the source for speakers and professional development leaders whose messages are ever evidence-based, and life-changing. If you're looking for a way to rally your students or staff for the conclusion of this school year or gear them up for the start of next year, then head over to topyouthspeakers.com. Check out the lineup of amazingly talented speakers. Browse their videos, see testimonials, and create an event that your staff and students will never forget. Visit topyouthspeakers.com.